3: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
4: All right. Yeah. No, no. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country.
5: Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Roy Phil Brown, who is in a rather sunny and glorious Bay Area. Today, I'm joined by my friends. Not all of them do I have on my script, so after I run through and name-check a few of them, I'm going to ask the others who haven't been name-checked to name-check themselves. Today, I'm joined by Laura Babcock, TV pundit from Hamilton in Canada. Eric Marcus should be joining us. He's from the Making Gay History podcast in New York. Mike Holden is with us. He's in Burnley in England. He's a friend of Donald Trump, I, I do believe. We have Clint Loti, ex Capitol Hill staffer in Washington, D.C., and we have the writer and always up for it, all round naughty girl, Emma Burnell, in London. Now, we have a crowded stage which befits our new format. We're going to do things very slightly differently. So, Scott, do we have you with us? We do. And you're in Tennessee, aren't you?
4: I'm in Nashville, baby. Same thing.
5: Then we have Ab, and I believe you're in the Lone Star State
6: yes sir Dallas Texas
5: we are joined by a friend of the podcast Dawn you're in North Somerset yes sorry <laughs> brilliant no that <laughs> a, a yes will suffice and then we have Chris Kachuna the returning hero of this podcast from some three years ago vintage uh, Chris you are in London which part of London I'm in Islington, and I like that
3: title, Returning Hero. Do I get a parade?
5: Yes, ticker take parade. It'll be like the 4th of July all over again as soon as the podcast is over. And last but definitely not least, we have my good friend, the woman who I speak to every day on Clubhouse, Kathy, in Newport. Hello, Kathy from Newport.
7: Hello, everybody. My name's Kathy, and I will be your parade Director, Chris, so we'll be chatting later. Goodbye.
5: Fantastic. In a week that has seen the British Navy send warships to the coast of France, just like it's 1792, we ask, just why has the Biden administration angered Big pharma? President Joe Biden has given his support to waiving intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines after pressure from the Democrats and more than 100 other countries. Um, Ab, I believe you're an all-round expert on this matter. You also advocated for it on WhatsApp. Why is this such a big deal?
6: Well, it's a big deal because currently vaccine production is not meeting the rates necessary, especially for poor and developing countries at the moment. Whereas us in the US and in Europe, we do have the benefits being able to have the vaccine and if anything uh, we have a great amount of the vaccine actually been thrown away here in the uh, United States because we just people just aren't taking it but that's another subject but currently countries like India which are making up about 42% of the new cases as well as you know it's starting to spread in surrounding countries like Nepal and Bangladesh and stuff. So there is definitely a need for ramping up vaccine production, which was something that was drafted. This waiver was actually, it's still in the development stage, but it was drafted by particularly India and South Africa. And it has been having some pushback from Europe and the United States. But this uh, reversal, I believe, there's only one step, very necessary global collaboration because uh, it, it will require not just the pharmaceutical companies that own the IP to make it available, but also we're going to need a technology transfer where they're going to have to show, particularly with the mRNA vaccine, how it's done. Because what you don't want is you don't want to have other companies imitating it and getting it wrong because that can definitely lead to some unintended consequences, especially if these if these other generic versions do not meet certain, you know, markers of quality.
5: Is it right and proper that us in the developed, in the rich West, basically give all we can do to to emerging economies, not just because of the economic interest, i.e. if they're all fit and healthy, they'll buy more of our stuff, but, you know, on, on moral grounds. Is the Biden administration only doing what is right and proper? Is there any argument against this?
6: Well, there is some argument. Some would say, uh, just like I uh, believe Angela Merkel, who the I uh, the uh, Chancellor or Germany, she has said she pushes back because, uh, and like others who were in the uh, part of the close who have relationships with the uh, pharmaceutical industry, they say that it will stunt any form, of, uh, or it will hurt rather, incentives, financial incentives for innovation. And which, I mean, depending on where you come from, maybe that may not be so important at the moment considering the unprecedented, you know, circumstances that we're in. Uh, But I would say a better argument against this would be the fact that apparently there are already nearly 200 agreements between pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies who are, who have the patents and other countries, poor and developing countries who, in terms of being able to create, do the the necessary technology transfer, so they are already agreements in in place. So maybe this is possibly something of good nature, a, a kind gesture, but it it really is going to be all down in the execution. Because as I said, what you don't want to have happening is you you know you create waivers for the vaccine IP laws, but then if the if the other companies that are producing it, if if they are not able to factor in for quality control and ensure that they are doing it correctly, then you're going to undermine vaccine efforts all across the globe.
5: Mike, uh, the British government has sent ventilators over to India. Are there any other efforts which the UK government has um, not just given to India, but to other countries around the world? Tell us about our UK effort in this regard.
8: It's quite difficult to put, to put in straightforward terms because the UK government has done as, as much as it can to help its own friends rather than help the world. I understand, I'm the last person to defend Big Pharma on this stuff, but I can understand how when you're dealing with multinational companies that are spending billions on development of chemicals, that those chemicals then can be given away. Against the will of the, of the companies involved, if they could do it with agreement, and I, I'm a bit puzzled at Angela Merkel saying what she said. As you may know, there's been a lot of to and fro between the UK and the EU. There's been a lot of vaccine nationalism that Boris Johnson wanted Union Jacks stick, uh, sticking on the, uh, the vaccines that came from the UK. So if there are if there are um, supplies being sent around the world, they'll have Union Jacks and Boris Johnson's face on. Uh...
5: Laura, let us know what the situation is in Canada regarding vaccines. The last thing I heard for the Premier Ontario was thanking the Biden administration for sending, I can't remember exactly how many, whether it was a million doses of a vaccine up north. And it was oh for shame because at the start of the pandemic, everybody was looking to Canada as one of the countries that was dealing with this well. So... Why have things changed around? Why are you now going cap in hand, not you personally, but your government or at least your regional government in Ontario going cap in hand to the Americans trying to beg, borrow and steal some vaccine doses? What the heck is going on?
9: Oh, I personally have gone cap in hand to Biden, to Harris, to anyone on Twitter to help us out. It's a disaster. The procurement, while we had a lot of purchases of the vaccines early on. We didn't have the kind of contracts that guaranteed delivery. There were all kinds of interruptions in the procurement. So basically, you know, the month of March and April, we didn't get the kind of vaccines that we needed. We did get a hand from, we gave a hand to Mexico But we are desperately in need of more. Now, at this point, they're saying in May, the country will be flooded with vaccines and we might actually be able to catch up a little bit, but not all the vaccines that we need. Some of them, we're, we're still having problems with the supply lines on them. And in terms of the actual situation, what's so terrible in Canada right now is that and I I do blame this. So I blame the the procurement part and the contracts on Trudeau. I mean, that was his job. But the actual distribution has been a nightmare in Ontario, the most populous province, the one that's the banking and economic center of the country. We have not had a premier who even set up any kind of good system to distribute the vaccines when we did get them. He spent all his time blaming procurement and doing nothing on distribution. It's been like the bloody Hunger Games here trying to get a shot. And we've also had that same premier, Ford. He did not shut down in February when the health officials said it will be a disaster in April if you do not shut down. So we are currently in a severe lockdown. We are now known as the lockdown capital of North America. I think we've been in lockdown more in, since this pandemic started than anywhere in the world. And you know, it is just doesn't need to be this way for a wealthy country that has universal health care. So the two provinces that are really suffering both have conservative premiers who kind of did a little bit of the Trump thing. They, they gave mixed messages. They weren't all in on the science. And uh, so Alberta and Ontario right now, devastated. Our hospitals are overflowed. Our ERs, our doctors are posting videos constantly, begging people to stay home, just trying to get through this worst third wave. And on top of all of that, we had one of the advisory groups nationally go on television and say that there was a preferred vaccine, the mRNA, which made everybody like me who took the other kind, the AstraZeneca, wonder what on earth is going on. So, you know, it's been it's been an absolute shambles of a response, a rollout procurement, distribution, and communication, Royfield. And I am pissed off, as are most Canadians. And I'm hopeful that Biden keeps pumping us full of whatever extras they've got, because when we see our American neighbors, our biggest trading partner opening up fully and we are in a situation like it's worse than it was last April, it it doesn't it's disgusting. It shouldn't be this way. So we need the help and we'll take it. We're not too proud to beg and thank our neighbors. And I hope we never forget what Biden's doing for us.
5: Gosh, Uh, Dawn, the UK is similarly slowly but surely opening up again. Let us know exactly where we are in that reopening up cycle.
10: Oh, gosh, I think half the nation's confused, actually. We, we can't have anybody inside our houses, well, unless they're a plumber or whatever. I thought that I might be okay to go and book a hotel and, and go off somewhere, and I discovered that unless it, it was still for a very specific reason, I couldn't. Um, so I had to cancel it because they didn't ask me. You can have six people two metres apart in your garden, in any one garden. You still can't stay overnight in somebody's house unless you're in their bubble. You can't go indoors anywhere in a restaurant or a pub or a bar or anything like that. You can only meet outside to eat. And it's still quite cold here, though, having said that in North Somerset, it's a glorious day today. And it's been wonderful in the sunshine. So it's it's gradually opening up. And. Huge numbers of us have had our vaccines and will be having our second vaccine at some point or another. And people over 50 have now been told that they're likely to get a booster vaccine by December or in December. Things are definitely getting better. Very, very far fewer people are being admitted to hospital, and only a handful of deaths now each week from people who contracted COVID 19 within the last 28 days. So it looks as they were opening up, but and the warmer weather's coming, so that's got to be a positive thing, because uh, as we know, it's a you know it seems to be particularly bad in the cold weather and and attacks people very badly who have a vitamin D deficiency. So it, it still feels like we're locked down, basically. Roifield,
5: Emma, this current administration in the uk the boris johnson one has played a blinder with uh distribution of vaccines over 50 percent of uk adults already had at least one jab and i forget how many have actually had two we've got to seriously get out our union jack bunting our union jack flags our union jack underwear and wave it all in celebration and appreciation of boris johnson and uh his government surely
7: well i don't own any union jack underwear Lovely. So, I won't be running those up the flagpole. But I mean, yeah, I mean, i have not. Got, uh,
5: isn't there a little part of you which is very much Jerry Halliwell with the Union Jack? Oh, no, it's a Union Jack top she was wearing, not an underwear. Sorry, go on. Sorry. I
7: don't own anything with the Union Jack on it, not for particularly political reasons. I just don't think it would suit me. I've always been of the opinion that you should give credit where it's due. The government absolutely fucked up an awful lot of the pandemic, and I said so. But yeah, the vaccines have gone really, really, really well. And thank God for that. You know, I want to go back to normal. I'm very happy that I've had my first jab. feel a lot more confident and happy going out and seeing people. And, you know, as soon as I get my second jab, then it's back to normal, really. My folks have had both their jabs, which is really, really key, because they were completely shielding. So, yeah, I do think, I mean, I don't buy your visual. I've never been jingoistic. I think being patriotic is great. We've discussed this at length before. We have. Um, but the fact that I think the government has done one thing right doesn't mean that I'm suddenly pro-this government and pro-government in general, obviously. Fantastic.
5: Um, M. Can I do this? Can I say very quickly to people that are in the room, uh, this is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast, which we've been doing for years where we talk about US and UK politics, where we compare and contrast. We now do this on Clubhouse, not quite every Thursday, but most Thursdays. If you're in the audience, feel free to uh, raise your hand um, if you've got a point uh, which you would like to make. But I'm going to slightly move things on. Today, the UK goes to its local election booths. This could expose the weakness of Starmer's Labour Party nationwide and strengthen a push for Scottish independence. Emma, can you give us a framing? What would be a good result for the Labour Party in these local elections? What would be a good result for the Conservative Party and the Scottish Nationalist Party?
7: I'm going to go backwards with those. The Scots Nats started really strongly mid-campaign and they've had um, some internal wrangling. Alex Salmond set up a breakaway party. He's the leader before Nicola Sturgeon. They used to be incredibly close but have fallen out. They were looking at the start of the campaign to win an overall majority. So a good result for them would be to get that overall majority. The um, system was supposed to be set up in a way that made that almost impossible, but they've done it before. They will almost certainly end up, they will be the largest party. There is really no question about that. The question will be how much of a largest party. And the more interesting question in Scotland is who will be the second largest party. The Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, is widely seen to have had a bad campaign, and very one-note, very hectoring, whereas Labour has a new leader, which is always kind of a breath of fresh air, in Anasawa, so, and he's been widely seen to have had a good campaign. So it could, and it's very, very close, it's very much in the margins, so Labour could end up even with slightly fewer votes than the Conservatives, but well distributed in the right seats so could end up as the second largest party in the Parliament. In terms of the Conservatives, they are almost certainly going to hang on, in, uh, not hang on, but, but romp home in Tees Valley. They will probably hold on in the West Midlands and Labour will have to ask themselves some very serious questions about why that is. They're looking not to go backwards and I don't think they will, to be honest. I can't see Labour picking up any councils. I don't think Labour's going to win the West Midlands. Labour will win Manchester and London. I think they're going to lose the Hartlepool by-election by a magnitude of about 10 points, which will cause very serious ructions. If Labour can get a scrape a decent result in the Welsh Assembly and the Scottish Parliament, they will use that to try and deflect from what are going to be disasters, I think, in the West Midlands and Hartlepool.
5: Chris, uh, you're in London, so you're one of these kind of metropolitan elitists, aren't you? Somewhat of an internationalist. (laughs) What would be some of the key election themes uh, in the run-up to May the 6th for you? Right, so I, I appreciate that you asked
3: me about key election themes rather than, you know, specific races, which as a transplanted Canadian, there's still a kind of... I get vague about the specifics of living in the UK. You know, I kind of... I kind of know my way to the airports and to the restaurants and at a certain level, the detail just, just eludes me. But, but, you know, as a political scientist, what, what I can't help but just remark on is, you know, in politics, timing isn't everything, but today it is. I mean, if these elections were happening, you know, back in October, you know, other people maybe have better numbers, but you know, I think that Labour was probably running ahead by ten points over the Conservatives. I mean, certainly Starmer was at that point when the narrative was sort of Boris Johnson's bungling of the pandemic. In May, you know, everyone's talking about this kind of vaccine bounce. That you know, we have very short-term memories in politics, it seems. And and right now, people are kind of buoyant about. Well, I guess we kind of do have things under control. So we're going to give this person more room to, to run with things. I do think, you know, I know we're going to talk a bit later about, you know, the UK Navy invading France. And, and the timing of that is really quite interesting that, uh, you know, the day of basically everybody going to the polls, you know, we're rattling sabers with, uh, with the old nemesis, France. And maybe that's just, you know, as a kind of interesting point of trivia of this pandemic. I mean, what is remarkable today is how many How many elections are taking place because of elections that were delayed last year and, and now today it's kind of all happening. So it's going to be interesting to see. There's going to be an enormous sound of, 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 people moving in and out of offices, I think tomorrow, which will be funny just to observe the scurrying that's going to take place. But yeah, but that's, that's the main thing that I'm remarking on is just timing and, and, and how, you know, how, how lucky in a sense the conservatives are that that these elections are happening today.
5: Dawn, so, you actually are a member of a council so are you up for re-election today or is this an off No. Year?
10: No, in North Somerset we don't have any elections that are coinciding at a, a different year. For, ours will be next year following Bristol, but all the surrounding areas including Bristol South Gloucestershire, what used to be the old Avon authority. So we've got South Gloucestershire, Bristol and Northeast Somerset and Bath, who also have the metro mayoral elections for the second time ever. The first time there was a great big fuss about them because nobody could understand why we got a city mayor and then we've got another layer of this, you know. Anyway, the, and and it it's been a conservative who, in fact, didn't even get reselected to stand again, even though he's been there for the last four years as a metro mayor. He's um, been replaced by another candidate by the Conservatives. He's been invisible, as has the candidate, really. So I think, I'm hoping that the Labour candidate does win, which is a, a Dan Norris, who used to be a member of Parliament years ago and a, a junior secretary as well, I think. But it 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 won't immediately affect us here in North Somerset. But I think in the longer term, it will, because I think that we will be kind of eventually will be become part of the old territory again, hopefully anyway. So I think that the face of everything is up for grabs at the moment because we had an independent police and crime commissioner for this area. And that's the only election that does include North Somerset. So that is, that. That uh, we had an independent he, a police and crime commissioner. And so that's all up for grabs. And I have no clue whatsoever who's going to win that one. And I don't even know who the candidates are. It's actually been a very kind of quiet election period here in North Somerset
5: well, because of it. We we, we live in, in strange, strange times. So yes, it, it stands to reason that uh, things have been somewhat muted on the election trail. Last question. The UK's elections today. No. How united is the United Kingdom? Will this election expose the gradual parting of the four nations that make up the kingdom? England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Mike Holden, over to you. Are we really just like counting down the days, the years until Scotland goes, Northern Ireland will definitely go at some point because of demographics if nothing else. it'll just going to be left with us, us and the Welsh, isn't it?
8: It does look very much like that. I mean, as Emma's pointed out, the the actual result in Scotland is going to be key tonight. If if the SNP get over 50%, they have a mandate to request an independence referendum. Boris Johnson just basically said, "Well, we're not going to commit you, so you can you know forget it." However, there is there was an interesting piece out this week that the Gina Miller case, which is back from the uh, days of the Brexit, the Brexit vote in Parliament centred around the fact that the referendum was not legally binding so the argument the counter argument goes that if the SNP get a, a, a majority let's say even a one percent or let's say eh, two percent get a majority they can hold a referendum under the premise that it's not a legally binding one but if then scotland votes in a majority to leave that puts johnson and uh, the uk government in a very Sticky spot, and yes, the mood music is very much that London rules the roost, and everyone else has to do as they're told. Doesn't have much of a say in it, so it's no wonder that gradually these areas are going to start wanting their own freedoms. Would hate to see the UK break up, but I fully understand why they want to do it. On that note, it
5: behooves me to say this is Mid Atlantic, the podcast, which we record on Clubhouse. So if you are in the audience, feel free to hold your hand up if you'd like to interject put one of the pundits right or just uh, state your state your case on a specific issue we're going to move back over to the other side of the Atlantic and we're going to talk about the GOP and them turning on Liz Cheney does Liz Cheney's fall mean that the Republican Party is institutionally taking a hard right turn is Trump here to stay Clint Losey I believe you got the inside skinny on on Liz Cheney you've been an ex capitol Hill staffer
2: uh, I, I am an ex-Senate uh, staffer um, from uh, Wyoming, uh, which is my home state and Liz Cheney's home state as well. You know, I'm not sure that the GOP has much farther right to turn, So, but they're going to try, it looks like. Just, you know, for anyone who has found anything else to follow in the news in the past three months, back in February, uh, Liz Cheney faced a vote from her party to oust her from her leadership position. She's the number three Republican in the House of Representatives, and she survived that vote by a vote of 145 to 61. And so everyone read those tea leaves, and it really looked like two thirds of the House Republicans were secretly hoping, were secretly willing to keep her and hoping to Trump to put Trump behind them and and you know get back to normal was the common interpretation of that. If 45 members, the House Republicans changed their mind this time around. That's all it will take to, to, to punt Cheney out of her position. So, I mean, that kind of leaves the big question then, you know, what has changed in the past three months since that February vote that could, you know, move people in, in from the, from the, from supporting Cheney to, to pushing her out. And I think the thing that has changed is nothing. The Trump winging of the party has not been punished. Trump has not been punished and is still a significant political force in general, particularly among his base. The never-Trumpers have not become ascendant. The delusion that Trump has won the election is still infecting a huge portion of the Republican base. So, that's, so you know, that's the real danger for Cheney is that 45 members will kind of realize that it's not that the party needs to put Trump behind them and move on. It's that it's that Liz Cheney is the person who needs to be put behind them. Um, and that, that may be what has changed since then that puts Cheney in real danger of being ousted.
5: Where do Republicans who believe the election wasn't stolen go now? Where do these establishment Republicans go? You know, you Mitt Romney's, etc. Eric Marcus, we haven't heard from you. Why don't you opine on this weighty question?
11: Ha! What a great question, Roy Field. I have been watching this with, with a, a bit of glee, horror for the state of our country. But glee because Liz Cheney is a horrible, uh, is, is, I won't say she's a horrible person. I don't know her personally. Her politics are horrible. Her father was a miserable person and a great danger to the U.S. So I say it couldn't happen to a nicer person. But in terms of the country, it's just this, it's like the Republicans haven't gone far right. They've gone far delusion. They've gone off a cliff. So it's it's hard to say where they're going. It's hard to say where they're going or what this will ultimately accomplish for them. I suggest, I am I, I, embarrassed to say how much pleasure i take in watching this unfold personally not for the country i think for the country it's a disaster scott
5: can parties of the left can the democratic party take pleasure in the fact that the republicans are somewhat imploding isn't this a, a time for solid center whereby the democratic party can you know the democratic party needs an effective kind of opposition that's what democracy democracy is all about
4: yeah it's interesting Thomas uh, Friedman wrote an op-ed about this in the New York Times yesterday. He was kind of arguing that basically that Democrats needed to sort of support what he sees as sane Republicans like um, Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and Adam – who's the guy? um, I forget the guy from Illinois. Adam Um, Kinzinger? Kinzinger, yeah. 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 It's interesting though. what I find – so first off, this isn't really ideological. It's personality-driven, right? I mean it's not – it's – Liz Cheney's is not, is not a moderate or something like that position-wise. And there's not – it doesn't seem like there's a big – there are big position differences between her and the opposition. I mean the difference is are you a Trumper and are you denying that the election was, was stolen? And those are the things that are the fault lines. So this – it's uh, – yeah, I mean I think it is a, an interesting moment politically – but you know it's just it's, it's interesting that that, that whether that Ch- Liz Cheney now is sort of <laughs> is for some people like the the face of a moderate republican party I mean she does not strike me as, as moderate in the least, but again her you know she's not part of the trump cult of personality, and so that sort of is, is where the fracture is and i think I, I do think we need we need a, a solid opposition party and and that's not the Republican party right now i mean on on I I, it's, I struggle to think on any issues like what what innovative ideas are Republicans putting forth, and I can't think of many. Maybe school choice. I mean, no, whether or not you're a school choice advocate, I mean that that's at least an idea out there. But other than that, on many of the biggest issues of the day, Republicans just don't have a way forward. <laughs>
2: I mean, I think part of the problem there is not just finding common ground on issues. There are, you know, there are a couple where you could find, I think you could, but like like you say, it's very rare, but it's just, I think it's really hard for, particularly for the Democrats to engage on, you know, legislating and, you know, kind of policymaking when there's this huge problem, you know, lurking in the room that is, that they're, the the people they're trying to work with fundamentally don't respect the, the rule of law or, you know, the reality of the facts on the ground. So like, I mean, you can you can try and find, you know, policy yeah. that, that both sides can claim bipartisanship, but at the end of the day, you still have one party who, you know, is supporting rule of law and one party that is totally consumed by this cult of personality. And I think that's, you know, kind of a, a much deeper, deeper rooted problem.
11: Roy hey, you'd ask me if there's a place where people like Mitt Romney and... Liz Cheney and the repu- current Republican Party. I should have answered that first. It's a simple answer. No.
9: It's amazing. If I can just
8: said... chip in, I, I think something yeah. that Trump said in January was quite key. That he stood up on stage and said, "This is no longer the Republican Party. This is the Trump Party." By dint of not not going away, essentially after being beaten, he seems to be proving himself right.
4: And the polling shows that. I mean, the polling overwhelmingly, when the poll Republicans, they ask who they want to be their 2024 candidate. It's overwhelmingly Trump. I mean, he's not going away. I mean, people that think Trump is going away, I I, I think there's an excellent shot that he's the nominee in 2024.
9: I agree. I've always thought we shouldn't underestimate Trump way back to before when he was just musing about running years ago. And when he entered, he was what so many Americans really wanted at the time. And he has a, I think history will look back on him, not in the way that we characterize him now, but in just in terms of how insidious he was and, and the skills he had at manipulation and the propaganda. I mean, if you just look, it was Press Freedom Day the other day, International Press Freedom Day. And look at what he has done just in terms of endangering the lives of journalists with his fake news, how that took off, just a simple slogan, put so many people's lives in danger and threatened any kind of accountability and gave, uh, gave support to autocrats around the world. His impact has been devastating, and I don't think we should ever underestimate it. Just because he's not on Facebook or Twitter right now, we're getting a bit of a reprieve, and we're laughing at pictures of Mar-a-Lago and you know, enjoying watching the GOP split itself in half while Biden just charges through and gets some real policies in place. I, too, share the concern that Trump is just planning his comeback. You know He's going to waltz right back in. Now, will America be so pleased with Biden's leadership? That, except for, you know, the diehards are going to look at it and say, hey, we've got something that's functioning, whether it's Biden or Kamala or a combination of both. This is the kind of leadership we need to keep trucking. But we'll have to see. So, so let's not indulge ourselves too much in, in thinking that Trump is passé. I don't think he's passé at all.
0: Yeah, I think I think what
12: we're saying here is, you know, Royfield, you asked if there's room for some sort of centrist party. There's no center. There's no center between these two poles. And, and you know, all of this has its roots in the fire eaters of like the 1850s who basically decided that slavery was a moral good and developed a whole religion, which is evangelical Christianity or sect, I should say. It was basically built to justify slavery. And these folks have, you know, there's a through line through segregationists and on on to today. Of people who they have absolutely no interest in sharing power with people who aren't them, and there's no center with that. Like, how are you supposed to find center between people who are willing to basically take away your right to vote, to have fair representation, to participate in in governance? There's no there's no negotiation that they're interested in, and and it's really really hardy to pretend that that, that exists.
9: Well, when you have leaders coming out having to say we are not a racist country, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they're 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 arguing against that negative. I I agree with you wholeheartedly, and this is a real moment as we can all see. Is the GOP going to? continue as a party that courts racism I mean they came so close to having that caucus that America caucus that was flat out racist this was so they came it stopped but it didn't mean that it didn't get way too close to the edge and I can't believe that I'm in a conversation where Cheney and Romney are seen as the heroes in the discussion because you know they were so they were such a threat for so long at least from a Canadian perspective with their with uh, their beliefs and everything else, their warmongering, especially with Cheney. So, I mean, we are looking at this as neighbours. Thankful there's an adult that's taking care of stuff so we don't have to be as concerned every single day about what's going on in the US. But, you know, the election's coming fast and I'm not feeling particularly at peace watching this. I think America's got a real question to ask itself about is it going to fully and finally stop giving voice and opportunity to racists and to people who, do hold that belief. It's disgusting to watch.
3: You know, I I think that sort of Liz Cheney's journey since January is, is like a a nice synopsis of kind of the Republican Party's ambiguity since since January 6. I mean, you think back to February when, you know, she's wrapped on the knuckles for for insisting that, you know, Trump's election narrative is is a big lie, but she holds on to her position with, you know, two-thirds of her colleagues votes and and, and in part because this is a woman who, you know, most Republicans would struggle to demonstrate as conservative a voting record as Liz Cheney, and that was February when, you know, there was a lot of ambiguity about where is this going to go, where where is the power in the party now, and and I think that you know the, the events of this week, where her story has gone, would suggest that yeah, that that ambiguity has faded, and and there is a strong recognition that. You know, his power and influence is undiminished. That's still kind of the axis through which success in, in, in the party, in the party runs. So, so I, I, I agree with, with, you know, Don, Laura, Scott, what, what you're saying that, you know, if, if Liz Cheney is the barometer, it's pretty clear who has to hold on power and, and, and the line that we should project into, into, you know, what the next few years for Republican politics are going to look like. Yeah,
4: I, I think that that's right. And I just want to add something to what Chris is saying, that Trump, Trump did something unusual as a Republican. A lot of traditional Republicans over the past decades, they court the base, they court the religious right in the populist base. And then when they get elected, they, they, they run, they, they govern a more establishment, right? And they embrace the establishment. Trump didn't do that. I mean, Trump kept doing rallies, kept fighting for the base kept you know he he was he was a sort of champion you know for the base over against you know quote-unquote liberal elitism and all this stuff and the fake news media and i think so i think that really garnered a lot of loyalty for trump because he didn't leave them standing at the altar you know like he he has and, and and that that base is powerful now it might not be a big enough base to win a general election you know like it didn't it ultimately didn't his his base of support didn't garner a victory, but he got the second most votes of anybody in in history except Biden. So I mean, the guy does turn out votes.
5: The problem is with with Trump and Trumpism, that whilst he might fire up the base, he also fires up the opposition, doesn't he? And he fires up the opposition more than he actually fires up his own base. So ultimately it's a losing
4: ticket. It's interesting. The Republican party in California is a third party, right? It's the number one party registration is Democrat, then independent, then Republican. So, yeah, I mean, Trumpism could could wind up creating this kind of permanent entrenched minority party.
5: I am welcome to the stage, sir. We're talking about the GOP, where it goes next. What happens to the Liz Cheney's of this world, the Mitt Romney's of this world if the the, the party establishment, is kind of turning its back on those uh, Republicans who believe that uh, the last election actually wasn't stolen. What are your thoughts on this?
13: Sure. So I, I think there's really fascinating civil war playing out in uh, the Republican Party, as, as I think all of us agree. But it's it's reaching you know a bit of a crescendo this week as the Facebook Supreme Court decision kind of got handed down, or or in this case, you know, kind of punted. But there was a very interesting interview that was done recently with Frank Luntz, who's this Republican pollster that is quite well known in kind of a GOP circles, and he encapsulated the, the conundrum that the, Repu- the modern Republican Party finds themselves in, which is there's an increasing likelihood, uh, you know, it's only 2021, but it's, Trump is signaling that he intends to run in 2024, that a lot of people who thought he was doing that just to freeze the field is in fact, he's in fact serious about doing so, and all of the machinations he's doing to try to create these Trump aligned people in primaries is, is evidence of that. But he said, if Trump runs, There is no possible alternative, and there is no way that he doesn't win the nomination. But on the flip side, he, this Republican pollster said, if Trump gets the nomination, there is no possible way that the Republicans win a national election. And so he thinks that there's drumbeat that Trump is creating right now amongst, uh, you know, the the big lie and all, and and this jihad against Cheney and others is not only hurting Republicans' the brand if there's anything left to it in, you know, a, a brand in tatters, but he also thinks that's imperiling. The House, the House of Representatives in 2022. Now, it seems like early to think about that, but the early betting on the House of Representatives is that it's a very steep hill to climb for Democrats to hold, and the Senate is already a bit of a toss-up. And here is a Republican pollster. I mean, this guy gets paid by Republicans, has been a lifelong Republican. I've met the guy. There's no more Republican in the old sense of the term, in the Cheney-Romney sense of the term. And he is saying that Trump and his machinations are basically imperiling what would normally be a layup for Republicans, which is to win an off-year election in the House of Representatives. And, you know, the, the Republicans have painted themselves into a corner that I don't see how they get out of it because Trump has this Bengali hold on the base, as someone put it so well, the base is too big to ignore, but too small to win any kind of national election. And so I I don't know how this plays out other than there's a splintering of the Republican Party that occurs, which would doom them even further to a minority status for the foreseeable future. So it'll be fascinating to see, but I just don't see how it plays out any other way.
11: It's it's a great interview. It's a great, let me just add, it's Eric here. It's a great interview. I heard it on Kara Swisher. On sway and on uh, our sway podcast. And he said essentially, the Republicans can't win with Trump, and they can't win without him. And they're stuck. It was, it was a terrific interview
2: and And what I was going to add to that is that they can't win without him because, you know, it's really unclear whether or not the Republican base turns out if Trump isn't on the ticket., you know that seems to be something that contributed to, Democrat success in 2018 midterms, in addition to the Democrats were were eager to to vote just to vote against Trump and the Republican Party. But, you know, if if Trump isn't on the ballot in 2022, it's not clear that the folks who are only in it for Trump are going to turn out to vote for Republican candidates, even if they are Trump-endorsed candidates.
6: politics aside, I, I do think that it is very concerning that the Republican Party has essentially doubled down on the culture wars as pretty much a platform rather than any actual policy. I, I think that is going to be essentially their downfall because currently, you know, we, we we this country has not gotten any better in terms of you know inequality, infrastructure, healthcare, all this kind of stuff, and the lack of a conservative solution because of the, the focus on whether it's power of attention or even, you know, trivial things like Dr. Seuss and whether or not critical race theory should be taught in high school. These very, very... There's only so long that you can, you know, you can try to distract people with these things and not really have a solution for some very pressing issues, especially ones where their base are going to be affected. I don't know if Trump's policies lasted long enough to... Where we we can see how they affected his base, but I, I am wondering what is their the next move and once it does become clear how it affected you know the Midwest and those uh you know throughout uh, his support is essentially.
12: Yeah, I was going to say that you know there's been this alliance between the kind of conservative business people and the the right reactionary class and it worked for them for a long time, right? That was Reaganism in a nutshell, right? If you kind of keep your overt racism and your Armageddonism under wraps, like you're going to be on the winning side and we're going to, we're going to get you where you want to go. The only problem is that that conservative business class didn't get folks where they wanted to go and then when you hear you know the the Trumpists talk about the establishment that's exactly what they're saying like we we played your game for how long and what did it get us it didn't get us shit and now we're coming for you right like we're going to charlottesville all we want to charlottesville and because that's how we feel you know what and we're not sorry about it anymore and they're saying that right like that should echo all the, everything that you've been hearing from the Trumpists, if you're listening and the conservative business class is going, Oh, wait a minute. Like what happened? And, and I, I have no sympathy for the Romneys and the Cheneys. Like you guys were palling around with horrific, you know, racists for years and years and years. And you may have not been like overtly racist on your own, but like you were always there. That was always what you were about. Like, I mean, to say Reaganism wasn't racist when he launched his you know, his um, campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is a place only known for lynching black people. It literally is no nothing else. Is that in the state fair. And it was very clear what the dog whistle was, right? And so basically, these people who were kind of content to keep it under wraps for the sake of power, like they're done. And, and I, I think that that schism and that alliance is gone. And I think what Democrats need to do, what they haven't done, which is basically a death blow to that alliance is to adopt a real small business message, right? An aspirational, you know, we're going to get rid of racism and provide economic opportunity all in one fell swoop. That's the death blow. Because if they do that, their class of kind of independence that's ready for that message. And and it will be the, basically the death of the Republican party will have to completely reconfigure to, to compete in this country ever again, because their alliance is is breaking before our eyes.
5: Laura, you're going to have the last word on this and then we're going to start to wrap things up with takeaways of the last seven
0: days.
9: Go go for it, Laura. Yeah, I completely agree.
0: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love.
2: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
9: We are seeing a Republican Party break apart. It's a real moment for them where they have to do that gut check and that people who have been, as you say, piling around with racist all this time. It reminds me of that line from Hosea, you know, you you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind, right? They've got they've got a real problem on their hands. And it even affected Canada, a a really, you know, billionaire socialite in Canada posted that she took a photo with Trump at Mar-a-Lago last weekend. And the backlash was massive in Canada, just being in a photo with Trump and all that represents. So, you know, those Republicans are going to have a really hard time. They've either got to jump in with the cult or they're going to be pushed out to the side. Maybe they'll form another kind of party. But I think that the best ticket for the Democrats is the pragmatic approach to just being effective. You know, people in the U.S., if their lives get better, if the economy chugs on, if Biden's COVID response was seen as, as effective and he's able to stay away from some of the most, you know, outrageous stuff that can come from the far left in terms of things that will just push people away from the Democrats, I think that the Democrats have a good chance at staying in power. You know, people need to see competency. And so far, Biden has been impressively, impressively competent.
5: Well said. We were going to talk about the UK sending warships to Jersey, but I think we kind of did that a little bit before and we slightly overran with uh, looking at the ramifications of the GOP turning on its own Liz Cheney. So with what, seven minutes before the end of the hour before we, we wrap up the podcast, I say to you in the audience, if you have a point which you'd like to make if you think that maybe we've forgotten something, overlooked something, haven't really understood an issue, this is your time to hold up your hand and to quickly jump on stage. But whilst you're doing that, maybe whilst you're pondering whether you should air your views on on the podcast and in this room. I'm going to come go through everybody in the room, but what are you reading? What are you watching? What has basically excited you in the last seven days in terms of popular culture? Clint Losey, I'm going to start with you. Now, I know that you're an erudite man. You're cultured. you like a good bakery over there in Washington, DC. Um, tell us uh, what you've been up to in the last seven days in terms of popular culture
2: obviously the pandemic has been a lot of binge watching but there are a couple things that i'm starting to catch up on just now at the hopefully at the end of the pandemic that i missed from the past couple years and that's the americans which is a pretty fantastic drama uh russian spy soviet spies in, in the us in the 1980s and then modern family as a kind of a as, which is a sitcom that ran for 11 seasons, and i I just love Modern Family. It is exactly my type of humor.
5: Big ups to both of those uh, suggestions. I came to The Americans very late in the day. I, I think I started watching it when it was already on season four and it had that utter sense of loss when I finally, number one, caught up. So then I had to wait for the episodes in real time. That was a real pain in the backside. And then secondly, when it was all over, it was utterly gut wrenching, and that's the thing about binge watching anything—the sense of loss when you actually finally get to episode, num- you know, when you get to the final episode. Emma Burnell, you're yeah. always you're always doing something cultured. Tell us about something.
7: Uh, well, actually, what I'd like to say is about local government because that's, you know, most elections that are happening in England and Scotland today, local government elections. It's the most important form of government really. I'm very big believer in delivering locally where you can. Sure, national frameworks, making sure that we have national standards, but making sure that we have local delivery networks and local understanding of need. And yet we're not talking about that even on the day that we're supposed to be electing local government. I don't mean us as this group, I mean, us as a country. I mean, the Labour Party have been—you know—they've done their usual party political broadcast on the NHS, which has absolutely all to do with local government, all local government elections. But yes, again, we're all, we're talking about the NHS. So I just want to shout out to all the people who work tirelessly and thanklessly at the actual coalface where people really live in local government, because I think it's really important and we don't
5: appreciate it many It's one of the key structural things which is actually wrong with the United Kingdom is that too much of decision-making is made centrally. Not enough of it is made locally. Local councils can only raise something like a third of their budgets actually from... From local taxes, we actually hamstring, we 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 denude local politicians of of real power, which is one of the reasons why we've only just had relatively recently this uh, whole layer of local governance around local mayors, uh, metro mayors, and even then they have little and no power compared to the rest of Europe or even North America. So it's one of the structural things we need to get right, and when we get that right. Will kind of unleash economically so many cities and towns, which are uh, just centrally planned. Couldn't agree with you more, uh, Scott. Speak your piece. Uh, you are in Nashville, not. uh What did I say you were before? Before we started recording, I got it completely wrong. But you're in, you're in Nashville. You're t- you're sampling the good, you know, the delight of that wonderful, charming city. Tell us somewhere you've been in the last seven days.
4: Yeah, you know, I've been to a couple of honky tonk bars, which I've never been to establishment like like this there're these like multi-story pubs downtown that have like live music on every floor so it's, it's been pretty interesting I've met a lot of interesting people I've, i I kind of stick out here as I, I sort of look and smell and feel like a northeasterner <laughs> like so I feel a little bit
5: whoa, of a well like, how do northeasterners smell do they not wash or what how, uh, we, how we, do they we smell, smell
4: absolutely we smoke we smell like lilacs and roses I mean, really? we're just we're, we're wonderful fantastic yeah so that's been so I've been so I've been out and about a bit and I'm enjoying myself and also I've been binge watching a bit I've watched the show called Condor which if you like spy thrillers it's it's I think it's from epics it's excellent. So I'm in the second season, and it's based on the film Three Days of the Condor, which I think was a Robert Redford kind of spy thriller in the 70s or something. But um, it's excellent. If you're into sort of spy thriller, you know, sort of stories, it's, it's pretty good. I, I highly recommend it.
9: Can I highly recommend The Serpent on Netflix? It's about it's a true story about about a serial killer he he actually kind of preyed on the hippie culture and he traveled around the world and committed all kinds of heinous murders and it's a pretty amazing cat and mouse kind of uh movie that sounds excellent
5: ab over there in dallas no recommendations about alcohol so no talking about uncle nearest oh whoops oh, I, i've said it tell us something which uh, you've indulged yourself in in the last seven days
6: well outside whiskey I am actually getting ready for a book that I ordered recently that I'm really excited for once it arrives. It's called Equality in American Dilemma 1866 to 1890." Professor Charles Postel. He was actually on Clubhouse and it is that room that where he was giving interview. It was fantastic and just so 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 great. His, his knowledge just how Social movements have essentially started and how they died and how also how they thrived, particularly post-Civil War and during the Gilded Age and what essentially led to various movements that occurred in the uh, 20th century. So that is that, I'm going to indulge myself in that book soon. Other than that, I am actually, believe it or not, getting ready to go to a, a tea house Out here in uh, Dallas, we have a few tea houses. So I have actually wanted to uh, understand and uh, experience the, the British afternoon tea culture. And so I'm going to get dressed up and, you know, attend one of those.
5: Just be careful, right? When you have your scone, right, you put the cream on first and the jam on top any other way is pure barbarism don't let anybody else tell you there's another way no there isn't it's the end of civilization is the other way chris kotuna obviously this is you've now let me down massively because you know you, you i'm, I'm it.
3: just pointing out that there is
5: no another way there isn't there isn't another way i
3: didn't i didn't take a stance on the issue
5: but even saying there is another way you're hinting that there are barbarians in cornwall that will absolutely put the jam on first and the cream on top which just messes the whole thing up but anyway let's not talk about afternoon tea a, a delightful english tradition of which i do try and partake in as much as i can whilst uh, actually in california it's a great place in alameda just down the road which is a malaysian tea house which i'm gonna gonna try soon i love me some finger sandwiches
3: well i mean the HBO has has put on the internet its first images in the Game of Thrones prequel, House of Dragon. I mean, we should all go check that out. Especially if you need just something to sort of cleanse your palate after the uh, the series finale of Line of Duty on Sunday. But I won't get into that. You know what? Oh, did I... you want something more
5: highbrow? No, I... no, 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 no. Listen, I don't expect <laughs> anything more highbrow from you an Oxford Don, who travels the world doing motivational, you know, speaking. Game of Thrones is utterly perfect, but remember which way of how to um, cream your scone, sir. All right, Eric, Marcus, over there in, in New York City, a city that I love and adore. And I promise you, the next time I come to New York, uh, Eric, I'm going to be knocking on your door. Where are you going to take me? Where are we going to go?
11: Oh, <clears throat> there are so many places to take you. I'll take you to the High Line first, the uh, elevated park, and then to my favorite. I love the
7: High Line.
11: It's oh, good. Place.
7: I love it so much. And what? it's a really good example of community partnership between local government and communities.
11: It is. My neighbour across the garden from me is one of the founders of it oh
7: fantastic i will yeah. tell him how much i love
11: it and i'm raving about it from six thousand miles away i will tell him <laughs> can, can, and can, i will take can, you there, can, can i just say i have
5: been to the, the high line but i can walk it again the first time i went was 2010 when there was only the first mile or so done the last time i went it was it was much further we went all the way much, much longer um we are copying it in birmingham we we have an old viaduct which hasn't been in use for i don't know 50 60 years or so stands high over Digbeth, this industrial bit of birmingham and we are completely ripping you guys up and doing a highline
11: good there. good good in fact the people who run the highline now consult on programs all over the world so it's, and, and so perfect. they should so
5: they no. should anyway so you're going to take me to the highline wherever where else are you going to take me
11: well i am going to take you I'm going to take you for a beer at my favorite place Oaken hops which is just around the corner from where i live and just around the corner from the highline but in terms of what i'm watching I binge-watched, which is something I never do, a series called Unorthodoxed, about oh, a young brilliant. A, brilliant. Yes, a young woman who leaves the ultra She's a Hasidic family, and she leaves, she winds up in Berlin. It's a, it's one of the most wonderful moving things I've watched in a long time, and since I grew up around ultra-orthodox people here in New York City, ultra-orthodox Jews, they got every detail right. It was extraordinary.
5: Silly, brilliant bit of drama, and also the, kind of like the look and feel isn't of like traditional drama it almost feels documentary-esque the way the way it's kind of filmed uh, a lot of the actors don't have much of a, a kind of a a, a a deep history in terms of kind of their acting career so there's a lot of kind of like great new talent actually on that and i remember feeling actually quite sorry for the husband at the end who tries to understand his wife in an unorthodox ways brilliant, unorthodox, utterly fascinating, immersive bits of, I think there's only about five episodes or so. It's not that long.
11: There are five and I was so disappointed when it ended and I was also felt sorry for the husband. He was just clueless like so many of the, yeah. the young people. Well, that's a longer conversation, but it was terrific and I was sorry it ended. Now I want to know what happened to the characters, but they're not real people. Actually no, the, the woman whose story this is based on wrote a book called yeah. Unorthodox yeah. and I'm planning to read that too.
5: It's utterly brilliant. There you go, folks, that has been your Mid-Atlantic. We have done, including the Green Room, an hour and 35 minutes worth of chat of which in between what we like to read, what we like to watch on TV, what meat we like to consume. We dealt with a weighty topic of the UK sending war, warships to, to Jersey to, to, to frighten the French. The GOP turning on Liz Cheney and what that means for the future of the Republican Party. We've also looked at the UK council elections and what were the most important pre-election themes and what it means for the future of the united kingdom will it even be united and we started off by talking about the biden administration and its uh, vaccine waivers and what that means uh, for the health of the world and also for big pharma i'd like to thank you all everybody on stage for joining me uh, on this mid-atlantic you're much more up and educated on these topics than me and and thank you for those people in the audience for listening we do this not quite every thursday but most thursdays we start off with 30 minutes worth of green room chat where we just lubricate our brains and our vocal vocal cords and then on the hour we talk about uk and us politics with clint losey emma burnell scott laura eric marcus chris kachuna and other assorted friends of mine, of which one of them is Kathy today. So again, why don't you, if you want to be alerted when we go live with these, hit the little green a house on the top of the page which says Mid Atlantic. Become a follower. So then you'll never miss out on great opinions and insights from my pundit friends. Take care everybody, look after yourselves, be good, and don't forget left to centre politics is right thing in politics. Bye bye.